0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Well Said Podcast. My name is Andre and I'm here with my wonderful wife, Leah, and we are back again to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in a post-Christian culture. And we are in week, what, three? Three, yeah. Week three of the quarantine life. So you may hear the kids in the background running around singing songs. Don't mind that. This is home life for us. Yep. How's quarantine been for you? Are you feeling like you're clawing at the walls?
1: No, I'm surprised. I think it's because we're waiting for this baby in the next ten days or so. Should make his arrival. So I think with this late pregnancy stage I'm usually I you tend usually to hibernate. Don't wanna, yeah, you wanna be at home. <laughs> I wanna be at home. I think I would be suffering if I wasn't this pregnant, um, and about to give birth. Yeah. I think I would be like going crazy, but I'm actually doing okay and I think I'm just staying connected with all my friends through all the different social media platforms and just texting. And so it feels like I'm still, you know, talking to people.
0: Yeah, I think we, you know, we critique social media and there's plenty to critique about it, but um, this is a time that really shows you the blessing of technology. I mean, yeah, I, it sucks to not see people. I totally will be the first to say that, but still feel pretty, pretty connected to yeah. people texting people uh you know as zoom as, as funky as zoom is it is a really hilarious video by to <laughs> on youtube by trip and tyler on zoom meetings um but it still works you know and it's yeah. cool like you could see people you can talk seeing somebody's faces it's, it's still good it's not it's better than nothing yeah so um it doesn't seem like our kids have felt it yet Nothing yeah, really changed for them.
1: They've been totally good. And not, I think because they're just just young enough to still be like, well, this is our normal life, so.
0: Yeah, I stood in line at Trader Joe's yesterday. That was interesting, but. Um, Did they make
1: you stand six feet apart from people?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it was nice.
1: from the car, yeah. it looked like it was just a regular line. It didn't look like it was, you guys were like spread well, out Well, people,
0: not everybody gets it. Oh. Um, <laughs> but Trader Joe's is like fully stocked like perfectly everything's perfectly stocked there's no crowd and it was funny every time there was a girl stocking the vegetables and I would come up I like came up to get the carrots and like the moment I come up a little closer to her she like jumps back and and I was like oh sorry and then like I got one bag of carrots and I was like oh I need two so I went back for another and she just like jumps away (laughs) it was kind of funny Yeah.
1: yeah I think some people take it way more extreme than others like stay away and don't They'll like jump back.
0: Although honestly, being like a healthcare professional, um, if I was working in a public setting like that in a store, I'd be wearing a mask.
1: Yeah, some of them are. I saw. Nobody,
0: almost nobody's wearing masks. I. Yeah. If I was, if I was out there in public, I'd be wearing a mask. Just saying. Yeah. So, anything else on the Corona life updates?
1: Not much going on. Just lots of. I hanging I'm out.
0: just enjoying. Well, I can't really say it yet, because last week was just a crazy finals week for me.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a busy week.
0: But I enjoy the opportunity to wake up every morning, grab my coffee and dive into the office. Like the bookworm in me is thriving. Yeah. Not that I don't miss people, like I really miss people, and I hope people don't get the wrong impression <laughs> from our church or from our group. I really miss everybody, miss getting together, but it's really nice to retreat.
1: Yeah, I think bit. it's going to be extra sweet once quarantine is over to get together. I think we're going to enjoy it and it's going to be the time where you know, warm weather hits and we're all out more and I it's just going to be extra sweet to Every, everyone's going to be
0: so excited hugging and kissing each other. It's going to bring another <laughs> wave of corona.
1: <laughs> it's just I think it's going to be a good time once yeah. it's all done and summer hits and we're going to be having a blast.
0: Yeah. So what are we talking about today?
1: Um, Today's topic is super interesting and really, not that I'm nervous to like talk about you're that. Still, yeah, but you're still, yeah, you're still uncomfortable so, about this. Because it's such a hard topic, I've always thought about it. And I kind of partly, you know, get answers from like resources, but it's still a really heavy topic. And it's basically the topic of, is God like a moral monster like an all powerful
0: You have a you have trouble with that question if God is a moral monster I
1: know he's not because of understanding the Bible and like but there are passages in the Bible that are kind of hard to swallow they're hard to like if you don't understand the yeah. context you're like I don't even know where to go with this this Particularly is Particularly the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament and reading through um, last year I did the whole Bible in nine months and just reading through the, the violence and the slaughter and, and the, um, just a lot judgment? of judgment, death and, and yeah. just a lot of like slaughtering of, of people and nobody is innocent. I understand that, but just a lot of that in the old Testament just, it's hard to like read through it and accept it at face value. Like, well, that's what happened, you right. know? Right. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about. Basically,
0: yeah. Is the God, and this is a common criticism against Christianity today, um, is God in the Old Testament wrathful and vengeful versus God of the New Testament, which is kind and gracious? That's a constant question or maybe a criticism. Uh, You know, anti-Christian advocates um, will always point to the God of the Old Testament and the war passages and the cursings. Uh, in the Psalms, and um, show you know, pointing to the fact that God in the Old Testament is bloodthirsty, vengeful, angry, uh, demanding deity, um, and you know how how do we process that, and how do we look at that? So my background a little bit here. First of all, this is going to be you know we're just going to hit on some of the key ideas here. We're not going to be able to cover everything because it's a big topic. Yeah. I want to recommend you guys a book called. Is God a Moral Monster by a guy named Paul Copen. Um, Very well-written book. Each chapter deals with a separate question.
1: Mm-hmm. Just a
0: great book to have on your shelf. If you're not going to read through the whole thing right away, that's fine. It's just a good one to have on the shelf, and it deals with different stuff like slavery, the, the, the war passages, like uh, Old Testament laws, like all these different things. So it's a cool book.
1: Yeah, that sounds really helpful because I think as Christians we need to at least have a... Have a like an outline of what we can answer to the world who you know brings up these passages like well God your God wasn't anti-slavery and your right. God wasn't and they'll bring up Old Testament passages and stuff and we have to know what we believe about that
0: right. So having said that, um, I think that what I would want to say is if you still have an unanswered question like after this episode or you probably will mm-hmm. um, feel free to reach out. Um, Biggest way we are kind of communicating is Instagram, Um, but the fun part about a podcast is that it can be a conversation back and forth. It's not a kind of one-time deal. Yeah. But hopefully this conversation will kind of give you some tools to kind of navigate the questions.
1: So I guess first question I have is how do we grasp the concept or accept As humans who believe in a sovereign God, how do we accept or understand this deity who can be, who says he is love and grace and mercy, and yet, you know, floods the entire earth and kills all of humanity, you know, or a God who um, sends fire from heaven and kills people. Yeah, I think like the that. first
0: the first thing that I would start with is when we talk about God, um, we as sinful human beings we are bent like so. The Bible says our tendency is to construct a modified view of God. Like to be a sinner is to be a creator of false gods mm-hmm. or of false perspectives of God. So if you want to, if you, if you believe the Bible, if you want to start with a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of humanity, of being human, uh, and, and a biblical view of what it means to be a sinner, you, you have to start with this awareness that in you, there is this tendency to construct God based on my preferences. So we get very uncomfortable when God is not what we expect Mm -hmm. because we are sinners yeah. We have expectations. So we, when we come to this conversation, you, we, we got to be aware of our own expectations. Let we, so be aware of the fact that you have expectations of what God should be like. Mm-hmm. And those expectations are often false because your heart and your mind is broken by sin. So you can't – so one of the biggest you know problems in this whole conversation is, Uh, with people who are critiquing Christianity is they start with the assumption that all of my expectations of God are correct and he has to fit. Yeah, yeah. And and we get very uncomfortable when God doesn't fit our categories. Mm -hmm. The whole point, though, let's back up and see – If there is a God who is beyond us, who is mighty, magnificent, wonderful, and far above us, Mm -hmm. you know, scripture says constantly that my thoughts are not your thoughts, or God speaks to Israel, says, You thought I was altogether like you, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you have to expect God to be perplexing, Mm -hmm. to be challenging, to be difficult. Because this is the God that requires faith. If a God, if the God of the Bible perfectly matches all of your expectations, it doesn't require faith Mm -hmm. because he just fits. He just, it's just, it's just natural. It just fits in my expectations. You know what I'm saying? So, and specifically, we tend to oversimplify. This is another piece that's so critical, I think. We tend to oversimplify a God. We, we tend to oversimplify our expectation of what God should be like. We tend to oversimplify the complexities of the Bible. So the Bible is a complex book. It's, it's a simple message in a sense. The message is God created the world. He created all of us. We're full of sin and we rebelled against God. And yet God has made a way for us to be saved from sin, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, because the, God, the the God of the Bible... Is so far beyond our comprehension he doesn't fit into our minds that's the whole point his word is full of paradoxical challenging plot tensions so when you face something difficult in the Bible don't minimize it you know this is yeah. one of those things so we're gonna dive in, in a little bit here probably one of the most challenging texts Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist is praying, he's saying blessed is the one who repays Babylon for what they've done to us. Blessed is the one who dashes their infants upon a rock. So, I mean, that is stunning. That is harsh, very, very tragic moral language. But our tendency is to steer around it somehow and just pretend it's not there or gloss over it and simplify it. Mm-hmm. Um, people do the same thing with the question of my my will, free will, and God's sovereignty. Like don't minimize the complexities of the Bible. let them be complex. Let the plot tension be there and then seek to ask, how does the Bible itself resolve these things? you know So these are just really important considerations, I think.
1: yeah, so I guess partly what you're saying is if in our finite human created, creaturely brains we could grasp the god of the universe how would he be above us in any way if we could fully comprehend if you can comprehend
0: god then you are god
1: if there's no um contradictions and no and no confusion and no mystery to him how can we claim he is the god of the universe
0: he he is not evangelical christianity in america wants a god that is tame Mm mm-hmm understandable, therapeutic, helpful, safe. Um, Politically correct. (laughs) Yeah, we want a God who serves us, a God who fits our needs. Um, But these things, we're not always aware of these attitudes in our heart as we read our Bible. But it's critical to just bring that to the forefront. Just be like, you know, my sinful heart struggles with the real God. But, But desire the real God. Desire the God who is going to Really challenge you, and really, uh, you know, push you in your personal categories of what is right and wrong, and how, what is true and what is right. Are you basing it on your own sense of logic, on your own personal ink, your own personal uh, uh, compass, mm-hmm. or are you wholly molded to the Word of God, understanding that even your own logic, your own moral framework, everything in you is flawed? Without his redeeming word, you can't trust anything in yourself. Yeah. You know?
1: I think that takes humility to, to have that kind of po- that kind of posture before the word of God. I think it's so difficult for us people. We are full of pride and we ultimately want to resort to, if it doesn't make sense to me, then it can't be true. Or it can't be, if I can't grasp it in my brain, then it's, it's a paradox and therefore it can't be in the Bible or it can't be real or I think that it's a really good foundation to enter into this topic. I think if we all just understand this takes humility um and that our own mind cannot be our ultimate source of truth,
0: right, and that's like the biggest probably that why we were spending we're like fifteen minutes into the podcast and we're just haven't taught you know because this is one of the most huge it's it's under the surface' it's an assumption in the heart of people today um you know, not understanding. Look, there's only two options. Either you have the God of the Bible in all his mystery and complexity and glory, or you have the God of your personal or cultural preferences, Mm -hmm. you know? So you have to be aware that even though you're a Christian all your life, you know, you're always being pressured by the culture to modify all of your beliefs to fit what people want uh, to expect from us or what you want, you know? Versus having a view of the God of Scripture who is the one who molds us. He molds our categories. He molds our sense of right and wrong, morality, justice. He is the creator. We are creature. That is the fundamental distinction. and We depend on him 100%. Another
1: thing that we often struggle with is God's word is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us humans therefore that is the one thing we can trust that is the one window he has opened about himself and all of it not just new testament where god is jesus dying on the cross but the uncomfortable violent passages of the old testament god is a god of the whole bible so we have to accept that in our heart and not when we're having these difficult conversations where our friends are bringing up like yeah but the old testament is so violent and gory and it's like, well, that was cultural and see, that was a different time. But like, we believe in the God of the New Testament. It's like, no, we believe in a God in the God yeah. of the entire Bible. We cannot be unfaithful to the what? entire Bible. And that's how he just chosen to reveal himself. And that's how we have to take him because that's how he gives himself to us in the entire Bible. And I think I struggle with that because it's like, this is the image I have of the God I worship. And I want to... Exclude certain passages. Or yeah, certain well, parts and of the, the Bible. only reason
0: we feel that tension, honestly, I think, is because a lot of us don't know our Old Testaments. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to be mystified and and um, you're going to be uh, scared of it. Yeah. But when you read carefully your whole Bible, you realize God is the, the same. He's the same in both Testaments. He is just as loving and as wrathful in both. He's He's the same God. Same plan of salvation. There's no difference. Um, so I think if your theology is leading you to cut Bible verses out or ignore Bible verses or passages in scripture, you've got a problem.
1: Or to label them as culturally irrelevant to today.
0: So I think that, that hits me on one of the first points that I want to hit is, um, when you read the Bible, you see that God is the same in both testaments. He is the same God who is holy, righteous, righteous. Perfectly just, not allowing evil to, to get away Mm -hmm. unpunished because evil is evil and he is just Mm -hmm. and his goodness is expressed in his justice Mm -hmm. against evil. But also, um, you see this huge emphasis. I mean, in the old Testament is where it starts. Um, the emphasis of God's desire to save and show grace, um, you know, We are used to looking at the story of Israel and saying, look at all those laws God gave them. Now we have grace. Back then it was law. That's a false dichotomy. Law and grace is not a dichotomy between Moses and Jesus because grace was present in the Old Testament. Think about it. The law was given to Moses only after God saved them from Egypt. They did nothing to get saved. Mm-hmm. He saved them. He showed his grace. He delivered them. Mm-hmm. And then he gave them the law, which created a framework for them to live in covenant with him. Mm-hmm. So the law was given for Israel to live in unity and love, experience his grace. Mm-hmm. And when God proclaims his glory to Moses, if you notice, there's it, his relationship to his grace is not symmetrical. To his relationship with his wrath now you have to be careful how we say that because god's wrath is not wrong or not separate from his love but when you see god proclaiming his glory he 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 spends this huge emphasis saying the lord the lord merciful you know within his steadfast love eager to pardon and forgive mm-hmm. and cleanse and then um and then to the thousands of generations and then he says you know uh, by no means allowing the guilty to uh, and the evil, you know, to go mm-hmm. unpunished to the tens or hundreds of generations. So yeah. God has always, in the whole Old Testament, ever since the fall and ever since Genesis three, God is on a project to redeem. You know, if you look at the story of Noah, uh, we, we we often think, oh my gosh, it's so terrible that all those people died, and that that is terrible, but. At the same time, that story, first of all, is showing grace. Um, There's a year, you know, or a huge long period of time when Noah is building the ark Mm -hmm. um, and obviously proclaiming Mm -hmm. God's, you know, call to repentance. Right. It's it's a visible call to repentance to the whole, all the tribes surrounding him.
1: Yeah.
0: They mock him and reject him, Um, and then after, uh, after the flood. Um, Noah sins. God says, you know, evil is bound up in the heart of man. Mm -hmm. And yet God's God makes a covenant with creation and says, nope, I'm going to continue my my covenant with creation. I'm going to continue to love this world and hold it up because I'm going to find a way to deal with sin, you know. So God is loving his, his love is is a core component of who he is within his Trinitarian relationship and that love overflows in his love to creation and to human beings mm-hmm. and wrath and like you know we, we we all often separate the two his love and his wrath yeah you cannot separate God's love and his wrath because his wrath is a jealous wrath His wrath is a jealous wrath for that which he deeply loves mm-hmm. So he is a God who loves so much and because he loves so much, he hates so much equally that which destroys the things he loves, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You cannot say a husband is more loving if he allows his wife to be taken by people and abused.
1: Mm
0: hmm He's just going to be loving. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. He's going to be wrathful and jealous Mm -hmm. because he's going to protect her Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or, you know, in so, so that the wrath of God is an expression of his love because it is an expression of his commitment to destroy all that which goes against the things he loves. Yeah. Now, so, so you can't separate God's wrath and God's love. Yeah. Just like you can't separate the love of a, a loving, protective husband over his family. Or, or a father, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. People get so uncomfortable with that word jealous, you know. Mm-hmm. Oprah says, "I could never believe in a God of the Bible because it says he's a jealous God." This is not jealous like Kim Kardashian jealous of her sister jealous. This is <laughs> this is jealous this is jealous of a possessive love. Protective. A deep love that desires to protect and keep and hold close.
1: Yeah.
0: That's the jealousy we're talking about. Yeah. And so, so the burning fire of God's wrath is the inverse reflection of the burning fire of God's love. And the whole story of Scripture is God loving and redeeming a sinful humanity that just keeps on sinning and hating and breaking the covenant and disobeying. Yeah. Why does he bother? Right. Because he loves so deeply. Right? So here's the messy part. Sin infects the human heart. So even though God loves human, human creatures, all humanity that he created for his glory, sin infects and possesses the whole human heart. So, yeah, so
1: how can he deep, so deeply love something that is so deeply full of something he so deeply hates?
0: Right. So the, the tension is obviously that um, God loves all humanity, and he hates to see the destruction of his beloved creatures. And yet sin has infected humanity. And um, the righteous response to evil and sin is wrath and punishment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he, is, he, he is righteous and just to... So, so if you love the glory of God, if you love the love of God, if you love the intimacy of God and his beauty and all things that he does in creation, in the world that he created to live in harmony with humanity, you must see a true necessity for the wrath of God. You, you have to, right? right? yeah. But the tension is that the wrath of God must come upon sinners, even though at the same time God loves those sinners. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, you see... That God, he says specifically, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yeah, It's the, 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 the wrath that comes upon sinful humanity is a wrath inflicted upon humanity by their own choosing to rebel against the king who loves them. Right. But just because he loves them so much, it doesn't mean he's going to cancel out who he is as a just judge because it would be evil to let them go on being evil right? and to do nothing about it. Evil creatures, they hate uh, God's people. you know. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning in the garden, there is an enmity that arises between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Mm-hmm. That's a plot theme that Moses develops very clearly in his books. God makes a promise. I will crush the. I I promise that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Mm -hmm. And through all the chapters, right after that, you see this, this, um, this plot line of there's there's humanity starts to be divided in two. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yeah. And the reality is, the seed of the serpent, those who rebel against God, those who follow the way of Satan and rebelling against the Creator. They hate not only the creator, they hate the people of the creator. Mm-hmm. They hate the saints, you know. So, um, God's righteous wrath must fall on sinners, even though it pains him to destroy them. And yet, we must understand that th- th- that's correct. It's righteous. Yeah. We as sinners, it is right for him to punish us in our for our sins. It is a correct thing for the judge to to destroy evil right and we desire evil you know that's another thing that a a part of our cultural formulation we are innocent Mm -hmm. or we are victims right we are not victims you know like if you get married you see that very clearly we have sinful desires that wage war inside of us against the very person we love so much that we married to, that we swore to love and be with, you know? You have selfish, sinful desires that you want to follow. Mm -hmm. And at their foundation, those desires are against the God who has created you and has a plan for you. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we are victims in the sense that we live in a broken world and we are sinned against constantly and we are victims of other people's brokenness. But at our core, before God, we are not victims. We are perpetrators. And if you understand the beauty of his righteous love and his righteous order, if you understand the beauty of all that God is and all his perfection, you understand the ugliness of the crime against him. You agree with the need for justice against evil, and you agree with the fact that evil is bound up in every single one of our hearts. So if we have trouble with the idea of God punishing sinners, we still have not grasped the beauty of his love, the beauty of his standard, his perfection, and his order. We have not grasped the evil of evil, the terribleness of evil. If we don't in our in our hearts agree with the fact that evil must be punished and that any punishment against us is just because we have evil bound up in our hearts we desire it constantly and as tragic as it is you cannot divorce uh wrath against the sinner from wrath against the sin because sin is bound up in the heart of all people so that's that's the irony the tension the the plot uh difficulty complexity of the bible is that god loves all his creatures and yet many of his creatures all of his creatures are in sin and have become have chosen the path of rebellion against him and they are living a life of evil rebellion against the king that was one of the questions that came in related to that and i think it's one of the most difficult things for us to understand in our current culture that you cannot separate the identity of the sinner from his sin. And that, as human beings who are sinners, we are guilty as charged. And that it is overly simplistic to think that you can separate the sin from the sinner. And it is precisely because God loves all human creatures that there is such an intense plot tension in the whole Old Testament. Because we are sinners, we are rebels, we do evil, and yet. He desires to show mercy and make a way to be just and the justifier and to rescue us from the guilt and to give us love at the same time as to truly destroy and put an end to evil. So when the Old Testament speaks of God punishing people or, uh, you know, responding to their sin with wrath... Um, it is not a wrong thing. It is not a God who is vengeful and bloodthirsty. If you read the whole Old Testament in its context, it's always a heartbreaking reality for God and almost every time God judges, he's judging and yet not totally. He's always there's always a remnant preserved where he's calling people to repent. Mm-hmm. So in all the na- cur- cursings and judgments that God pronounces on other nations, on Israel, there is always an implicit call to repent and turn, always. In Israel in all of its wars, it was ne- there was never an opportunity for any of the nations to not turn. You know, the story of Rahab is a great example. She knew, her whole city knew that this was the God who is leading these people. And yet the the whole point of that story implied there is that they refused to turn and and to submit. Rahab desires to say look I w- your God is the real god and I want to submit and she is saved um, the whole city is destroyed um, when God so so total destruction passages in the Old Testament are actually pretty rare and one of the things that Paul Copin points out is that the cities that God uh, destroyed in totality when it says all everything that breathes um, that's a common phrase in Old Testament literature that just means like a total destruction. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that there's a lot of women and children there. It's like a, it's a phrase that's like a package phrase that says destroy it. But um, one of the things he points out historically is there's like only two or three cities that God says totally destroy. Mm-hmm. None of the other ones, God God said that. And mm-hmm. those cities were actually, they're, they were military outposts. Mm-hmm. So they were mostly just, Soldiers and religious leaders of those religions, mm-hmm. and if you look at the religions of those people that God judged, um, they were brutal. They they sacrificed their children to their gods. It was like a, a normal part of their was they were they were killing their babies and sacrificing them to their idols, and they were very brutal. They were very um, just uh, debased uh, cultures that God had to punish and, and
1: destroy. yeah and
0: that total destruction comes upon those few cities. and those few cities historically are actually it is the vast majority of archaeological data shows that they're actually military outposts. and it was mostly soldiers and government leaders and religion, pagan idolatrous leaders mm-hmm. in these cities. All of the women and children and families did not live in the cities they would live in the tribe areas all around. And so when the war comes, you know, uh, the cities were like the place where people would run and hide, but it wasn't the place where everyone lived.
1: Okay.
0: So that's another consideration. That So this brings us to another consideration when we're talking about Old Testament violence. The Old Testament is the ancient Near Eastern world. Very different world from ours. Mm-hmm. The world that they lived in was a world of total war. That's just how the world worked. Um, it was total destruction, total war, and it was a bloody world. And
1: So kind of like kill or be killed, there's no that, middle ground. That is
0: how it worked. And not only that, um, military strength and, and government strength was very, was completely interconnected with religion. The wars of the Old Testament are not against certain um, races because you we, we know for sure that when Israel came out, some Egyptians came out with them. We know for sure that other people of other tribes joined the people of Israel, and the, Mo- the law of Moses provides for them to be to be um, brought into the community. The law of Moses pr- provides special protections uh, uh, for uh, sojourners and strangers in who come into mm-hmm. you know provisions to help protect those people. So it is not ever race based and it's not genocidal. It is always against idolatry. The whole wars, all the book of Joshua, those wars are against idolatrous nations who oppose uh, God and his people.
1: It's interesting because reading through those passages, I guess we bring our 21st century mentality, our cultural mentality into reading of wars or about the wars. And we mm-hmm. think, or, you know, like when it does talking about, talk about like the slaughter of women and children, like in my heart i i'm like like how bad could could these women be that they would deserve to die like yes we're all sinners and my heart just instantly goes to that like we're all sinners but like they're mothers with like innocent little children but it's like if i'm not understanding the cultural context and the fact that these mothers were taking their babies and burning them at the altar of to pagan idols first of idols of all. Yeah.
0: Well, and even that fact still doesn't make it less tragic. It's still terrible. It's still horrible and tragic. But the the thing is not... Our reaction should not be to point to God and say, how could God do such a thing? Our reaction should be to look at the situation, admit that it's terrible and painful, and see this is the work of sin in the world. This is the effect, the disgusting, total, destructive effect of sin working in the world, working among people. And we need to note that it is not the pattern of the God of the Old Testament to be destroying and slaughtering villages of Mm -hmm. of women and children. That is not at all what is Mm -hmm. done. Um, When we talk about a Psalm like 137, um, and it's interesting because Psalm 137 is a very famous Psalm. The first section of it is um, very, you know, it's turned into a lot of songs. It's very, you know, it, it starts with, By the rivers of Babylon... we we wept and we hung our liars on the willows. And then it says, you know, they our enemies taunted us. They said, sing to us the songs of Zion. Mm -hmm. And then the psalmist goes on and says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then, you know, basically it's this heartbreaking psalmist, a heartbroken psalmist who then pronounces curses upon himself, says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, You know, may my my hand wither and my tongue, you know, cease to function. Basically, Mm -hmm. he's saying, like, I will not forget the city of God and God's purpose in the world. Mm -hmm. And then he moves into this imprecatory prayer, which is like a cursing prayer and says, Mm -hmm. basically, God, please.
1: So the psalmist is, is in captivity during war in Babylon. Yeah. Singing, lamenting.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's a song of lament. And the set and the final stanza um, in that psalm, Psalm one thirty seven, verses eight and nine, he it starts with basically it's a it's a it's addressing God. It's not addressing the people. It's saying, Lord, don't forget what they did to us. Don't forget what the Edomites and the Babylonians did to us, um, and pr- and bring. What they did to us back on their heads. Mm-hmm. So that's how he prays. That's what he says. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, "Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations." O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Again, that is like extremely harsh and and terrible language but just to understand the context a little more clearly the psalmist is not just thinking of uh creative curses for his enemies okay the psalmist is is holding up a mirror to what was done to him and saying may what you did to us land back on you mm-hmm. um it is not at all the 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 command of God or the joy of God to dash infants on rocks that you don't see that in the Old Testament right. as a practice for Israel you do see it as a practice for pagan nations okay pagan nations would destroy and um, they would literally throw the babies off the walls of the city and like it's just disgusting barbaric practices of pagan nations. Okay. So what this psalmist is doing, he's holding up a mirror and saying, may your evil come back upon your heads.
1: Because that would be just... Because still in me, like I hear that and I say, but as the people of God who have his protection, why would we want their practices to be done to them when they were so evil done to us? Is it more like, God, do your justice on evil? It's a call to God to do... To be just, because repaying evil for evil is the way of
0: God. Yeah. So there's yeah, exactly. So there's a couple of things here. First of all, God Himself in the law says, "Eye for an eye." Mm -hmm. Now we again we think, "Oh, that's so brutal." You know, you have to repay people, and then Jesus says, "You know, you know, love your enemies." Well, you have to understand context again in the ancient Near Eastern context of brutalized warfare. Very oftentimes, revenge was way more bloody than the initial crime. Okay. So when the when the Mos- law of Moses says, eye for an eye, it's actually putting a restraint and saying, justice will be served. The punishment no will more. equal the crime.
1: Right, okay. Yeah.
0: Um, and so what this psalmist is doing, he's sort of quoting Moses' law and saying, Lord, fulfill your law. Right. Not only that, multiple prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they pronounce judgment on the nations. And again, you have to understand why is an Israelite prophet pronouncing judgment on Babylon, Egypt, Assyria? It's an opportunity for them to repent because God cares about all the nations Mm -hmm. and God calls all the nations to himself. But one of the ways he does that is by pronouncing judgment upon their sin and saying, if you don't turn, your sin will come upon your heads. Mm -hmm. And one of the constant, um, you know, one one of the quoted references God says is that you'll be totally destroyed Mm -hmm. what you do to other nations how you destroy the the children of other nations your children will be destroyed Mm -hmm. so this psalmist is quoting the law he's quoting the prophets Mm -hmm. against his enemies he is not pronouncing bloodthirsty revenge from his own heart Mm -hmm. he's actually submitting himself to what God has promised and he's basically saying God fulfill your promise Mm -hmm. you are the one in charge here your glory is at stake and I want mm-hmm. you to show yourself, to mm-hmm. show that you are still God. Even though Jerusalem has fallen, I want you to show yourself to the world again. That, that that the God of Jerusalem is still the God of the nations. And if we understand that this is a specific point in the story of the Bible, in the story of salvation, we realize that in this time, the, the reality of the Lord and God of the Bible is specifically tied to a nation and a geopolitical situation. So, as all nations had their gods, Israel had theirs. And it is through the life of Israel that the God of the universe is showing himself to the world. So, there's a deep passion in the psalmist for the justice of Yahweh, God, to show itself and that means in victory over their enemies it means in rebuilding their kingdom rebuilding the temple and showing them that he is a real God and that the others are mere idols
1: yeah that's very interesting to see it in that in that light because without understanding history and the culture and the times and without understanding that God's law was on the hearts of his people and when they ask for, you know, there's other psalms that say, like, bring crush crush our enemies, Lord, like right. let them die, like a very violent wish. Right. Um, it's not that this person who is trying to honor God, a psalmist, is saying, uh, I wish for evil, I wish for destruction. It's 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 a it's a desire for God's law and um, justice to be fulfilled. And I think that brings a different. Um, a, a
0: different light to it Yeah because here's the thing If you want to cut out all the cursings of the psalms You are cutting out your own anchor And strong hope of justice prevailing over evil Yeah Um, So there's like some authors like C.S. Lewis Who says oh this is the psalmist His sinful nature coming out mm-hmm. um, it, He's so wrong That's not mm-hmm. what's going on Mm-hmm Because throughout the whole Bible, as we've noted, there's a story of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the Mm -hmm. enmity, the war. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, sinners get caught up in that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And um, so the the important thing also then is to zoom out and say, um, in the whole of Scripture, how does this play out? Well, the, the, uh, the unbelievable, stunning thing is that the son of god is crushed for us right so so though we deserve we deserve total destruction we deserve the most terrible punishment the unbelievable shocking thing is that god has sent his very beloved son to be crushed under his punishment
1: mm-hmm.
0: for our sake in our place yeah so that total wrath of destruction god has chosen to come and to bear it for us And to free us from the coming wrath, you know. Yeah,
1: that's just that's an amazing thing to grasp because if you were standing there saying, "How can a God allow wrath? How can a God be so evil and violent?" Well, it's like, "How can a God? How can a God step under that and take that? Like He Himself endured that evil and that punishment for us. So, what kind of God would do that? Like, right." that is more hard to understand and to grasp than than a god who is just righteously destroying nations for their evil right. like that that's the part that's harder to understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you zoom out in the bigger picture as Jesus emerges victorious from the grave, we have the book of Revelation which shows us total victory and this Jesus is coming back and the saints in Revelation are Leading to God and saying, "How long, O Lord, till you avenge our death? How long, O Lord, will you will you uh, allow evil to languish in the world?" Mm-hmm. You know, God permits evil and God permits sinners to rebel and do terrible things mm-hmm. because He is giving time for redemption. And yet, in in Revelation uh, 19, I believe, He details the fall of Babylon. Now, Babylon is picked up, and again, I think this is an important theme here, Babylon and it connecting to the Psalm 137 is not only Babylon um, in that specific historical moment. In the whole story of the Bible, in the prophets and onward, Babylon becomes becomes the symbol of God's enemies. And um, uh, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah says, go out from Babylon, all the people of God, because Mm -hmm. It's like a second exodus it's like god's wrath is coming Mm -hmm. so flee from babylon and come to the new jerusalem revelation 19 details that total destruction of babylon
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that is including with it the devil all his armies the world the governments of the world who stand to oppose god who pervert god's justice and here god executes justice and it is a joyful thing for his saints because this is a God who has given thousands of years for the world to repent and turn to him. This is a God who has put himself in the line of fire
1: mm-hmm.
0: to, take, to take the wrath upon himself. He has done it. He has, uh, he has invited the nations to come. Mm-hmm. And yet those who persist must be destroyed. Yeah. Those who persist are thoroughly soaked in rebellion. Those who persist... You know, are Satan and his armies who oppose the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that is a joyful end, you know? So when you put that in perspective, y- you cannot cancel out the prayers of the Psalms for justice. You just have to contextualize them correctly. Yeah. It's a huge blessing for me to read those Psalms, not be- because I'm not praying upon hellfire and damnation upon ISIS. Mm -hmm. I'm not praying about, you know, when you pray for the wrath of God to come against his enemies, as a New Testament Christian, you know that you're not quite sure which human being is gonna be a final enemy. You know there is an evil enemy, a spiritual enemy, Mm -hmm. who is scheming, who is working in the hearts of men. Mm -hmm. So as a Christian, you can embrace this paradox. You pray judgment, you pray justice. You want because you hate evil. You mm-hmm. s- look around and see how much evil is destroying the world. And you have this anchor in the Bible Lord, destroy your enemies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Destroy them, you know, because evil is horrible, it's terrible, and it's real. Look mm-hmm. around at all the suffering, right? Yeah. And yet, as a Christian, you have the same ability to turn around and to call the nations. You know, come out of Babylon, come to the king, to the new Jerusalem, the one who has taken all the wrath, the one who was crushed for you, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that, although it's paradoxical and complex, it's also powerfully liberating because Mm -hmm. it gives you the ability to be a witness to redemption and to pray victory over evil, Mm -hmm. you know, and let God sift out the final details of who's going to be Babylon at the end Uh, You don't need to worry about that. And you don't, of course, you don't pray for the crushing of the infants of your evil neighbor lady who keeps calling the neighborhood association on you. Like, that's not what that's for. That's not who Babylon is. Right. You know, like, you don't personify it in that same extent because you are not in the historical context that that psalmist was. In that moment, that psalmist was in a very specific historical context. Those people murdered all of his family, and those people were mocking the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is pure evil, and yeah. may the same evil come upon their heads. Yeah. So when you contextualize it, you see that in the complexity of history, in the complexity of, of, of sin, God works, and God redeems, and God saves.
1: Yeah, and I guess just a side point. Um, I have heard people who are pro-abortion use that, that psalm. And they, mm. and they say your God delights in abortion there is a psalm or a verse in the Bible that says you know blessed is the one who dashes the infants against rocks right. and your God is a God who does that and plus if you are a Christian you believe that babies are innocent they get, go to heaven anyway so why are you standing against abortion why do you care I'm just I'm just wondering you know how do you respond to that in the conce- in the context of what you said um because in that conversation with someone who's pro abortion and a non believer, for you to explain the entire history and the, no, the entire yeah. culture and why no, I, the psalmist was saying what he was saying would be it would take a lot of time. So how do you I think that's something I've I've come up against often. People who bring up the Old Testament and examples of baby babies being killed and that this is after they're born.
0: Yeah, I would say the overwhelming witness of the Old Testament is absolutely not that.
1: Yeah, the context speaks for itself. It does not. It is. It is in no way saying that God delights in this. And this
0: is. And if you read the Old Testament at all, you realize this is in no way the pattern of God. Oh, let's go kill all the babies so they go to heaven. That's absurd. Yeah. Totally absurd. It's just not. So the basic thing is like, no, that's just that's not that's not right. So I think you know, as Christians, um, we have to embrace the complexity of the Bible because ultimately it gives you spiritual freedom and it gives you spiritual anchors. To the difficult, complex moments of life, you know. Yeah. So when we learn to see God correctly, and we let like God, God is going to make us uncomfortable. There's certain things that are just tragic and terrible. People died in the Old Testament. Uh, women and children died because of the terrible effects of sin. But you see God weeping over this. You see God making a way to save. You see God prolonging opportunities to repent and turn and making a way.
1: So. Yeah, and I think the the more often you read through the whole. The whole bible and get a grasp of the entirety of of the story of god what lifts above the pages of of the the old testament and new testament you see these characteristics of god he, that, that he is ever merciful ever present ever want giving a way out for sinners um present giving himself making covenants with a rebellious people who don't deserve it in in the slightest and i think that Lifts above the details of the violence and it helps you understand, at least in a tiny sense in your limited mind, who God is and his character. And then that helps you sift that down into the details you're reading and understand that, you know, he's he's a God beyond my comprehension. So I cannot bring my pride and my logic and my cultural limitations and understandings to what I'm reading and say I don't accept that.
0: Yeah, and your cultural, you're—we're blind to our own cultural limitations. Like we look at them and be like, "Oh my gosh, they were so brutal. They slayed people and cut them and had such terrible war." And it's like, but if they came to our culture today, they'd be like, um, "You guys are disgusting too. Um, we killed people because we had to protect our families. You watch it on the screen for entertainment. Like, yeah, what's do. wrong with you people? You have video games where you're just slicing people's heads off." for fun so you know like if we're often unaware of how culturally like snobbish we are because we don't we're often blind to the evils of our own cultural moment and we think when we look back at other cultures we're like oh they were so they were so much you know what evil exists in all cultural time periods and you you know it, you, when you look at those passages in the Old Testament, you have to contextualize them and see what was going on, and also then look back at ours and be like, "What would they think of us today?" They would, they would, a lot of the things we do today, they would be like, "Oh my gosh, this is messed up." The fact up. that
1: the victims by the thousands are innocent children in the womb. Babies,
0: you, just, you guys just have that clinics is, where somebody can just come in and get their baby killed, and that's it, you know.
1: And that's the that's the biggest loss of life. You guys build life.
0: bombs that kill thousands of people just one click of a button. That's destruction. Yeah. You know, yeah. So um, we are not all as righteous as we think we are. Right. But um, I think the, the complexity of the Bible um, is, is a gift of grace to us. So I'm sure that there's still things that are not answered for you guys. If you have more questions, thoughts, reflections, please uh, feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think. Um, if you have a moment to go on iTunes and rate the, the show that helps other people find the show, check out well-said.org. That's also... A spot where there's you'll find articles and, and resources and uh, there's also a support tab if you have a, a desire to support this thing keep it going there's a way to get connected with us thank you guys so much for listening and we will talk to you again soon